Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is How do I know if I'm trans? Part two. Hey there, listeners. Before we get started, we have two exciting pieces of news about how you can support our show. First, we have merch. Please head to our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. There you'll find a link to our Tee Public store, which has t-shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more. Listeners, you spoke, we listened, so there are items that have front parts and back parts and that have shout-outs to the Public Universal Friend. And second, you can make a fully tax-deductible donation to our podcast by clicking the Support Us button on our website. The Foundation for Delaware County, a 501c3 organization, is our fiscal sponsor, and they make this possible. Welcome back to this is probably a really weird question. Rebecca, why are we doing a part two of this question? How do I know if I'm trans? Because when someone goes into a doctor's office and you know broaches the initial question, how do I know if I'm trans? And then an incredibly empathic and well-informed doctor like Dr. Hayone helps them figure <laughs> out, you know, well, what do you want to do and what's your path look like? Then it becomes a question of medical treatment, of healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's another side of it. There are these other people who think they should be able to have some decision-making authority over whether or not this person is trans. Yes, for sure. Anytime you're trying to access healthcare, this is, at least in the United States, this is a, an integral part of how the care gets done. So, Anytime you come in to see your doctor, there is a, a medical code that we use to tell your insurance company what we talk about, right? So there is a, um, if you have a sprained ankle, there's a code for that. If you have psoriasis, there is a code for that. There is no medical code for being trans. We have a psychiatric code, which is gender dysphoria. And sometimes people aren't really excited about seeing that diagnosis on their chart for, for lots of reasons that we'll get into. But that's what gets sent to the insurance company so that they know what we were talking about. This brings up a very clear memory for me of the late summer and fall of 2016, where for some strange reason, I could not sleep. And I was waking up repeatedly throughout the night. Uh, P.S., I don't have a sleep disorder, but my central nervous system is very anxious about fascism. <laughs> so that turned out fascism, like it, it, impending fascism turned out to be, but there's, there is no diagnostic code for that either. Note to self. Patient is anxious about uh. impending fascism. No, no code. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I think that many people have hilarious or not so hilarious experiences with coding and billing. But one example that happens to trans and non-binary patients quite often is they go into the clinic for some non-gender related concern. And inevitably, the person who is seeing them 
either asks very intrusive questions about their gender identity and their um, process of gender affirmation or inexplicably uses gender dysphoria in the coding and billing for that visit. So I have a a friend and a colleague who I think went in to an urgent care clinic here locally for some respiratory concerns and got interrogated about their gender identity. And when we were talking about it, we were talking about it later, you know, kind of in the community, there's this joke about like, trans broken leg syndrome. And <laughs> and I coined a new term, which is transberculosis. <laughs> because obviously your transness has influenced this respiratory con- complaint. It's a bad oh case God. of transberculosis. <laughs> oh, but that's terrible. I mean, it's, you're it's terrible. Is, you're funny, but, the, but what happened is terrible. <laughs> It's terrible. I mean, you kind of got to laugh about it sometimes because otherwise, you know, you just curl up and never show your face again. But, you know, I think that this might be a nice way to kind of move into a conversation about the history of the gender dysphoria diagnosis. So as I was saying earlier, there's no medical code for gender dysphoria. There is a code within the DSM, which is the book that contains all of our psychiatric diagnoses, right? So mm-hmm. um, if you're trying to figure out if somebody meets criteria for ADHD, for example, you can go to the DSM and it lists all the symptoms and the length of time that you need to have displayed those symptoms. And you can figure out if somebody actually meets those criteria or not. Mm-hmm. So in 2013, the newest version of the DSM, the DSM-5, changed the name of this particular condition to gender dysphoria. And in order to meet the criteria for gender dysphoria, you someone needs to have a marked difference between their own expressed and experienced gender and the gender others would assign to them. And then it has to continue for at least six months and it has to cause clinically significant distress or impairment. And distress could look like a lot of things. It could look like feeling really preoccupied about getting rid of primary or secondary sex characteristics, right? So either genitals or body hair, things like that, or a belief that you were born the wrong sex. And then the impairment piece is finding it very difficult to function in social settings or work settings or other important areas of functioning because of this internal sense of disconnect between your own gender identity and the gender that others would assign to you. So not everybody who seeks gender-affirming care or who would benefit from gender-affirming care actually meets these criteria, right? And I have mm-hmm. I would say in my own practice the number of patients that I see who truly meet these criteria and who are distressed and impaired, I could probably count on one hand. And the the most often thing that happens is, or the most common thing that happens is someone comes in and they say, hey, I'm trans or non-binary. Can you help me? And I say, yes. And everybody's very happy, right? And there's not a lot of distress at all. It's just kind of, you know, gender euphoria. But prior to the gender dysphoria diagnosis, it was called gender identity disorder. Right. And, you know, the the American Psychiatric Association 
said that they made this change in nomenclature to help avoid some stigma, but also ensure clinical care for individuals who are trans or non-binary. So in in this statement that they that the APA put out, they said very clearly, and I quote, it's important to note that gender con- nonconformity is not in itself a mental disorder. The critical element of gender dysphoria is the presence of clinically significant distress associated with a condition. Okay, that's very well and good. But overall, I, I think what I have found and kind of after marinating over this for a very long time, I feel like the gender dysphoria diagnosis is pretty problematic, right? Yeah. So gender variance is not a psychiatric disease. Well, if that's true, then why is it in our psychiatric diagnostic manual? And as we talked about in the last episode, gender variance is a part of the human condition and just human variation. And sometimes it requires medical attention, but not always. Right. And just kind of for some context, homosexuality was in the DSM until 1973. And then after that, they replaced it with sexual orientation disturbance. And that diagnosis regarded homosexuality as an illness only if someone experienced great distress from being gay and presumably wanted to change. And, well, that sounds remarkably... (laughs) like the criteria for gender dysphoria, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think for for folks who are not trans or non-binary, it helps to kind of just take a moment and think about what it would feel like to have your identity understood through a disease lens, right? Because that's what this is. This is a diagnosis that is in a psychiatric diagnostic manual. I think so much around sexuality is framed as either normative or deviant yeah. or uh, healthy or disease, diseased or disturbed. And it is really, there are so many examples of people who, having whole self-images as adults formed around the sense that there is something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. And these diagnoses are really powerful. Well, listen, let me add to it just a little bit, because I think that this whole question around how we name what it is to be transgender and how that relates to the kind of healthcare a person can get is really important. And the part of it that I want to focus on, since you've given such a great overview of how physicians uh, and psychiatrists have defined it, that activists have made a huge difference to the way that healthcare providers respond to transgender people. You start in the early 20th century, a little bit in the U.S., a little bit more in Europe, to have the first surgeries, the first surgical interventions. Uh, So Alan Hart, who I mentioned in the previous episode, is able to convince his doctor to recommend him for a hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. There are people starting to have mastectomy, castration, even attempts to implant ovaries, Mm. all kinds of experiments with these different ways of affirming gender. And also, you know, you start to really in the 50s, the 60s, and into the 70s, there are more clinics in the United States where people can go to get trans-affirming care. There's a tiny number of people actually getting this care. Clinics 
start to word of mouth spreads news about the clinic. There are publications, there are exposés in newspapers, but most people are turned away mm-hmm. from it. It's very, very rare. And as the field develops, sort of leading up to everything you were just describing, physicians who are interested in this kind of work come up with criteria for whether, how they will decide. There's, there's not yet any central <laughs> organization that has said, mm-hmm. this is what permits you to provide trans-affirming care. So at all of these different clinics, they come up with their standards. And this is incredibly similar to how physicians and hospitals of that time were deciding whether a pregnant person could get an abortion. Mm-hmm. They had criteria for whether or not an abortion, this is pre-Roe v. Wade, pre-1973, in most states, it's completely illegal, except for uh, to save the life of the pregnant person. And so hospitals have their own criteria for deciding whether or not the patient's life is at risk. Okay, so so they, they do this then for trans-affirming care, and there's a psychological evaluation. They want mm-hmm. people to take hormones and... Sure express their gender for a certain amount of time before they'll do anything surgical. But ironically, one of the ways that physicians in the 60s and 70s are deciding whether or not a person is a good case, right, is a good, is a good meets the criteria for trans-affirming care, is if they would ultimately desire a heterosexual relationship. So, oh so you're really trans, in other words, according to these physicians in the 1960s and 70s, if you want to become a trans man in order to have intimate sexual relationships with cis women. Right. Or vice versa. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, over and over again, what we see when we look into the history of sexuality is this sort of oppressive, insistent uh normative assumptions about the differences between men and women, about the the normativeness of heterosexuality. And so even as scientists are really, in some ways, and these physicians at the forefront of rethinking the differences between gender and sex, right? Mm-hmm. Or and, and in some ways you think, oh, these are the cutting edge, most broad-minded physicians <laughs> of their time they still use the desire for heterosexual intimacy as a criteria for doing trans-affirming care. Right. I mean, and maybe maybe perhaps not to the same extreme that you're describing, but that, that sort of gatekeeping still happens, right? Just like um, <laughs> somebody wasn't considered really trans unless they ultimately hoped to be in a heterosexual relationship, right? So sometimes there are clinicians who cleave very closely to the WPATH guidelines, which is the newest iteration of kind of what I think you were referring to, which is the Harry Benjamin guidelines, right? So, you know, the WPATH guidelines are the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, and it is a multidisciplinary organization of professionals globally who put together these guidelines that help clinicians provide care to trans and non-binary people. I think the problem with any guidelines is that it's going to be, by definition, limiting, right? And sometimes people feel, clinicians or surgeons feel that they have to follow those guidelines to the letter, when actually that's not true. (laughs) Um, 
it, so for a long time, you know, there was a letter of support that was required from a mental health therapy provider to get hormones. And actually, you don't have to do that, right? Like, I don't do that. I don't make you get yeah. a letter of support from a therapist to get the medicine you need. So I use an informed consent model. And, you know, just like I would for birth control or antidepressants, we sit down and we have a conversation about the risks and the benefits. We talk about your goals. And if you understand the risks and the benefits and you feel that this is the right treatment for you, then we do it, right? Like, there's no reason... Right to pathologize and gatekeep in that way. You know, all of this comes back to, earlier we mentioned differences between what gender is, what sex is, gender versus sexuality. And mm -hmm. I think we've become, as, as a whole, as a, as a society, more comfortable with the idea, well, most of us at least, comfortable with the idea that gender isn't a binary, that there are multiple expressions of gender. But I think a lot of people get stuck on the idea that sex remains a binary, that there are biological, so-called, you know, there's only two. Right. And we, but we know that, I mean, medical science tells us that that's not true. Correct. And while we used to think that sex is kind of biological and immutable, right, that it's binary because we have these gonads and chromosomes and hormones. And we used to tell people, genders in your brain is sex and sex is between your legs. Oh, like, God. <laughs> <laughs> truth, truth, right? I mean, this is where this, look at how far we've come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does it make you cringe? <laughs> so what we know now is actually that sex is a, a process, not an assassination. So there are more than 25 genes that actually affect sex development. And not only that, but sex manifestation can be shifted even after birth. Right. So you know, there was this really nice article that, well, I will link in our show notes today, but they summarize some of these new findings in a, in a really nice way by framing it as sex determination is a contest. And it's a contest between two opposing networks of gene activity. And so changes in the activity or the amounts of molecules in these networks can actually sway an embryo towards or away from the sex that is seemingly spelled out by the chromosomes, right? Hmm. So there have been some really interesting studies in mice um, that, and interestingly, mice, the, the mouse genome is quite similar to human genome, which is why we do so many studies on mice. Mm -hmm. But what we have, what they found is that the, the, go, the gonad, right? So that's either the ovary or the testis kind of teeters between being male and female throughout life. And the, that identity of those cells requires constant maintenance. So in 2009, some researchers deactivated a specific ovarian gene in adult female mice. And after they did that, they found that the granulosa cells that are the cells that support the development of eggs uh -huh. actually transformed into Sertoli cells, which are the cells that support sperm development. No way. Yes, dude. So one gene, they deactivated it and it completely changes the function of the cell. 
Bodies are so cool. It's fascinating, right? (laughs) And then two years later, a separate team showed the opposite, that if you inactivate a specific gene, um, that it could turn testicular cells into ovarian cells. Amazing. It's awesome, right? And so we need to kind of let go of just the oppressive logic in general that, that there is yes or no, male or female, like the binary isn't helpful for anybody. Right. This is, I mean, I feel as if every time, well, every time I have a conversation with you, my mind gets blown. And I also think that every time I learn more about our bodies and about the sort of, I'm going to say magical, and that's not not right because this is science, but the sort of incredible (laughs) ways that, you know, the complexity, the sort of amazing complexity of the ways that our bodies produce hormones and how those hormones affect us and the way that our brains work and how we exist in our bodies. Um, Right. It's so fascinating. Right. If you really want to get into the weeds or take it to the next level, you know, actually both sex and gender are social constructs, right? And so sometimes when I say that, like people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like penises and vaginas actually exist, right? We know we can see them, that they are, they are body parts and obviously they can't be social constructs. Okay, yes, true. The physical tissue of the organs, right? Those are not social, social constructs. But the language that we use to describe body parts is constructed. Mm -hmm. And so are the ways that we think about those body parts, right? So there's nothing inherently feminine about breasts. It's just that that is the meaning that we have assigned to it. Right. The last thing I was going to say about um, like social constructs and sex and gender is that, you know, sometimes people get a little eye-rolly about the language being constructed and meaning being constructed. But actually... You know, these social constructs have repercussions, right? Right. And so these social constructs perpetuate pathologization and exclusion of trans and non-binary people. You know, I think it really strengthens the audacity (laughs) of the trans exclusionary radical feminist movement or the TERF movement where... They, this is a group of feminists who believe that trans women are not women. Right. And that biology is the ultimate determinant. And so these kind of social constructs help perpetuate that sense of, well, you may feel like this gender, but you're really this sex and nothing is going to change that. Right. (laughs) And it kind of encourages (laughs) debate about the validity and origins of transness. Right. This is a wonderful segue to what we're going to be talking about in our next episode, because the whole way in which the field of medicine has talked about human reproduction has been this very overtly gendered romantic tale of the Mm -hmm. passive, you know, Ova just waiting there, like in her, like Rapunzel in her (laughs) castle, (laughs) or like a sperm to climb the tower, right? And and get get to... (laughs) You know, there can be her. only one. And there's there only, can be one. only one. There's only yeah. one. And he, um, and, and of course, that is not how it works. 
Right. Before we go, I want to make sure to note that I drew a lot of the information I shared today from this amazing book by historian Joanne Meyerowitz. The book is How Sex Changed, A History of Transsexuality in the United States. You can find all of the citations that I drew from to uh, research this episode and all of our episodes in our show notes. You've been listening to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Twitter at A Really Weird Pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at Dr. Awkward MD. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening, and keep on asking those questions.